Hello, it's Brody. I love bringing mummification to you each week, and if you'd like to support me to keep doing that, you can make a once-off donation through the Acast supporter feature. There's no regular subscription, and your donation will help pay our music license, buy audio gear, and put fuel in my car so I can keep interviewing the amazing women who share their stories with us. There's a link in the show description and episode show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Mummification. I'm your host, Brody Matner. This podcast is a space for women and parents to talk about how they're feeling, and sometimes they feel like swearing. So this episode may not be suitable for young ears. Such when a small you world, messaged yeah. me, I was yeah, it's like, so exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's a small world. Today I am chatting with Sam Elliman, mum to Sparky, five months, nearly six months. Um, and I'm really excited about meeting you because way back in episode one, Nicolette Minster shares her story about a woman who approaches her while they're both in line waiting for IVF drugs and you, Sam, are that woman. Um, thank you so much. You you got in contact with me and said, you know, if you ever want to chat, I'd, I'd love to come on and I jumped at the chance because it's so it's so nice to to have you on because Nikki had told the story and so thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's really nice to be able to chat to you and just think back about everything that's happened over the last 6 years, I guess. <laughs> um I'll start with our first question. Yep. If you were stuck on a desert island and you could take one meal, one drink and one personal item, what would they be? Yep. So food, something to eat would be anything carb based. So I'm thinking just like a, a massive loaf of bread would be good. Um, drink kombucha, even though that might ferment even further in the <laughs> in the climate. And personal item would be a photo album um, of my, my baby and partner and family and friends. Um, Shall we start at the beginning of your fertility journey? Mm-hmm. When when was the beginning for you? What do you define as the beginning? Yeah. Um, so my partner and I have been together for about 13 years now. And so I always knew that I wanted to have a child and he did too, but it was always like, well, we'll just wait, wait, wait. It's never the right time. You know, you never feel ready. But also both of our mums were in their mid thirties when they had us. So I just always assumed it'll just happen in mid thirties. But I guess in my early thirties, I started feeling more and more ready and we started trying to conceive and one month passed and then two months, then six months. And I just started having a feeling that maybe this was not going to go as planned. Um, I essentially did like a vox pop of what I think like with my most fertile friends, it must've been. Cause I remember <laughs> asking a handful of friends, like how long did it take you guys to get pregnant? And they, they all said one month. And so I now know that that's not necessarily like (laughs) average, but the fact that they all said that um, made me think, okay, like maybe something's going on. And so around the six month mark when I still wasn't pregnant and I'd never been pregnant in my life, but I just assumed because I had regular periods, I was healthy, my partner's healthy, that 
it would be able to happen. And then around the six month mark, I remember going to my doctor and she recommended that my partner go get a sperm test because she said the male the testing for men in terms of infertility is way less intense than it is for, for women. Um, so he went and got a sperm test and the results were just terrible on all counts. And so he was really shattered by that. But I was actually like, obviously it was disappointing, but I remember thinking, oh, now we have our answer, right? It's, it's, poor sperm and we have a solution. I'd had friends who'd gone through IVF and done ICSI and I was told, you know, that's kind of your best. um, ICSI is where they basically, oh gosh, this is where I have to get my science brain on, which (laughs) doesn't exist. Um, It's basically with IVF, like if you have just, um, you're, you're basically like they're injecting, like they're, they're actually combining the sperm and the egg. So they're not waiting for like the sperm to wriggle its way into the egg. They're doing it. So I was told that's exactly what that procedure is for, for the sperm that isn't strong enough to swim into the egg. Perfect. Right. So I thought, great, we have a solution. Um, so I went to see an IVF doctor and in the meantime, my partner was doing a lot in terms of improving his sperm health. And it was actually, that's what got him into natural health. And it started this pathway into to him being really interested in that side of things. But he cut out gluten, dairy, sugar. He stopped drinking. He wasn't drinking much anyway, but he also had other lifestyle changes. He stopped having hot baths, which he loved. He was um, putting his feet up after long days at work. Like he was just doing so much. And in that time, his results were improving slightly, uh, but they were still not normal. And so I had gone to see an IVF doctor and she basically looked at us and said, yep, you, you know, you're relatively young, healthy. I think it's just going to take one cycle or two. Great. Let's start IVF. So that was probably about the one year mark and we did our first cycle. And yeah, I guess anyone who starts IVF will know how intense it is. And there's just so much to get your head around. I felt like I was able, you know, I was able to do all the injections myself. Like I felt so capable of everything until it came to the trigger injection. And when you pick up the trigger injection, they stress to you how important it is to get the timing right, like to the minute. And so there's all this pressure to do the trigger injection because that's what's going to release the, oh gosh, here we go. (laughs) I shouldn't be explaining scientific concepts while I'm sleep deprived. But basically that's when it's like your body's ready to go. Like you're going to ovulate and yeah, like, so they have to do it to the minute. So And do you do that once a once a cycle, like it's a once yes, off. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's once you've grown your follicles and then you're like, hey, ready to go in time for the egg collection, right? So if your egg collection's like 9.30 a.m. on a Wednesday, you have to do it at, at this certain time at night. Like it's it's so strict. And so I was freaking out about it. And of course I stuffed up the trigger injection in that I didn't know that I had to fully like it was hard to inject. I kind of only half did it and then thought, hang on, I'm not sure if I've done this correctly. So then it was a whirlwind the next day of having to go into the clinic, which is an hour away, get a blood test to see if I've ovulated or not, having to wait for hours while they checked and me thinking, okay, is that an entire cycle down the drain? Is that $6,000 just gone? Cause I've stuffed up one injection Anyway, they found that I hadn't ovulated, so it was all fine. But then when I had my first cycle, I only got two eggs. And I remember my doctor saying, look, that could have just been a stuff up with the injection. Like, let's just treat that as an anomaly and do another cycle. Okay. Um, That sounds like they said that very casually. (laughs) They did. And it's like, okay, yep, $6,000 like down the drain. Also, when you do your first IVF cycle, I found doctors will often tell you, look, this is a test cycle to see how your body responds. That is a hell of a lot of money and pain and stress for a test cycle. But anyway, we thought, all right, let's just do our next cycle. So we did that straight away. And with that cycle, I got seven eggs collected, which we were so happy with. Only one had a normal fertilization and we had that transferred. And I thought, this is it. Like I started thinking nine months ahead, that's going to be the baby's birthday. And, you know, 
um, and it didn't work. I think Nicolette mentioned um, on her blog she had the term like your most expensive period and that's exactly what it is. I just got my period and you think, okay, there's another six grand and another – um, cycle done. And was that really disappointing? Oh, I was devastated, absolutely devastated, especially because we just thought it wasn't going to take this long. And it's now like, okay, not only did we need IVF, but we've done one cycle that's failed. We've done two cycle that's failed. And so we decided to take a break for a few months and started working with a naturopath and then went on to do our third cycle at a different clinic because we just wanted something different. And then basically we ended up doing um, three other cycles with this other clinic. And again, the amount of eggs I got were very low. You might hear people say, oh, I'm shattered. I only got 10 eggs. I was lucky to get three (laughs) or four. And then from those eggs, we maybe got one that would fertilize. And so obviously we started realizing that not only is my partner's sperm not great, but there's something going on with my eggs. They didn't know exactly what it was, but I just wasn't really getting many eggs. The eggs that I was getting were poor quality. Um, And so, yeah, we were lucky to get one that fertilized. And when we did a transfer of that, it just wouldn't stick. And I do remember on one of the transfers, because I had four embryo transfers before we got Sparky. And I remember asking the doctor, like, what's the chance of this becoming a pregnancy? And I remember him saying like 10%. And I just thought, oh, well, I'm not even going to I'm not even going to hope that this is going to work because, you know, the odds are it won't. And, um, yeah, I guess in that time as well, um, Melbourne was going through lockdown and what that meant because we were then going through a public clinic just purely because we couldn't afford to go private anymore, uh, the, the egg collections were being done at a hospital and procedures, elective surgery, uh, which IVF was deemed, was put on hold. And so it meant that each month I would call up when I had my period and, I was often told, sorry, we can't let anyone else through. You have to call back next month. So that happened about three times. And by that stage, I'm in my mid-30s. I know that I've got a pretty poor egg reserve and I'm thinking this could be the end of it for us um, purely because we can't get in anymore. So we decided for our sixth cycle, which we thought this has to be our last now, like it just seems like it's just not going to work. Um, decided to go to a private clinic purely so we could just get in. And we did our cycle in February, completely new drug protocol, new doctor, everything. Um, We were hoping that I could get at least 10 eggs so that we could do half with ICSI and half with more traditional IVF to see what has a better fertilization rate. I remember doing my scan and them seeing that I had two follicles and I was just absolutely devastated. And that was probably the lowest point for me. Um, I guess in the midst of all that, not only was Melbourne in lockdown, but my dad had been diagnosed with cancer and was undergoing chemo. A friend of ours had died from cancer. Um, And so there was a lot of stuff going on. And I just thought, this isn't going to happen for us. Um, And it just felt like time was running out as well. And my parents not having grandchildren, I felt very strongly like I wanted them to be able to experience being grandparents. So I just remember, I remember after that scan, waiting for the bus um, in the suburbs of Melbourne and it was raining and it was just, it's kind of comical of how cliche it was, but I just remember listening to Nick Cave and just thinking <laughs> like, this is just the lowest of the low, like this is just shit. And I remember too saying to my partner, well, that's it. This cycle's done. I've got two eggs. And he is more optimistic than I am. And he was saying, look, we just have to ride it out. We just have to see. And I was like, there's no point even doing an egg collection. Like this is ridiculous. Two eggs, like with our track record, like even if something fertilizes, it's not going to stick. And he was just like, well, what are you going to do? Like, we just have to see it out. We did. 
Um, they got three eggs, which talk about perspective. When you think you've got two, you're bloody <laughs> excited when you get three. And anyway, what we decided, because I'd had four embryo transfers that just didn't work, I asked the doctor, instead of waiting for these embryos to grow to day five, which is what they prefer to do, um, can we just do a day three transfer? And because two had fertilized, I said, can we just put both back in me? Um, Because none of our embryos had survived to freeze. So essentially they'll transfer an embryo that's not a great quality. They won't freeze it because if it's not a great quality, it's not going to be able to survive the freeze process. So usually if they, if you have the two embryos, mm-hmm. they would transfer one and freeze the other? Exactly. Okay. But because we'd had such a long road and so many failures, he agreed that that was a good idea. I mean, they're obviously not going to do that for most people because your likelihood of getting twins and then having a more complicated pregnancy Um, is increased. We did have to sign a form that said we do understand there's a risk of twin pregnancy, which through my infertile IVF brain, I was like, fantastic, a twins, like a family done. Like, um, whereas now obviously I'm like, oh, okay, that would have brought a a challenge in itself. But I think it was like 5% chance in our case of um, of both embryos sticking, but we decided day three transfer um, and actually that was the only transfer my partner was able to attend with me. And so he actually saw the embryo um, on the screen and and being transferred, which was really special because previously due to lockdown, he hadn't been able to attend any of the appointments. And so we had that embryo transferred and essentially then I had the most stressful kind of month of my life, just in terms of all the stuff going on that I mentioned and various other things. Um, and yeah, I just remember thinking it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And I was pregnant and yeah, that was shocking to me as well. Um, but you know what the weird thing is with that last cycle, we, things just kept changing in terms of my, my period was short that month and then they had to move the transfer date and they only did transfers on this certain day. Anyway, it was just the goalposts kept moving in terms of the dates. And I do remember as a little girl, I would always tell people, I'm going to become a mum at 36, a mum at 36. That was my thing. And I realised the day that I had my embryo transfer was the day before my 37th birthday. So I technically did become a mum at 36, which was pretty weird, but there you go. And so what kind of time span was it? Five years? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how, I mean, it sounds also like there was a lot of other things going on in that five-year period. How did that make you feel in in terms of that being such a huge focus? In terms of having to focus on that while everything is going yeah, on? Yeah, well, in terms of, of focusing so much on, on getting pregnant and going through IVF, mm. did, did you feel it was really all-encompassing? Yeah, it definitely was at the start. I mean... So one thing is we didn't tell anyone that we were going through IVF and that was a conscious decision because I like to deal with things by myself. Um, Despite being on a podcast talking about my periods (laughs) and my partner's sperm, um, I'm usually quite private and I just felt like it would be easier to cope with everything by myself or with my partner rather than everyone knowing. And I also especially after the first failed round, I just didn't want to disappoint anyone and I didn't want to get like my parents' hopes up that maybe there was going to be a grandchild or even though they never pressured us or anything like that, but I just didn't want people to get excited for us and then have to let them down, which sounds stupid because, of course, they would have just been sad for us. But no, but then often you've got to carry like make them feel yeah. like it's okay. Exactly. And that's then extra pressure on Yeah, you. like you've got to comfort other people. Or I also didn't want people to know like the ins and outs of, oh, you've got two e- eggs and one fertilised and now what's happening? Because sometimes I just didn't feel like talking about it, yeah. right? And so, yeah, so we really kept that on the down low. So at the start it did feel all-encompassing, one, keeping the secret, but also juggling work and pregnancy announcements from other people and people asking, when are you guys going to have kids and all of that sort of thing. But towards the end, I mean, 
I think from the third cycle onwards, it becomes like a job. And I almost had to become quite pragmatic in terms of just thinking, um, you know, this is, this just has to sit alongside um, my life because it's almost like, yeah, like a spin of the wheel and just don't know what's going to happen. So I can't put everything on hold, which is what I had been doing at the start. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After such a long journey to have Sparky mm. um, and you you focused so long on getting pregnant. What was it like for you after you had her? After she was born? Yeah. Um, it was such a whirlwind and so I had not thought about what it was like having a baby, which sounds ridiculous when you think about it. It was not a surprise pregnancy. It was very much a long wanted and planned for pregnancy um, but – I had a lot of anxiety throughout the pregnancy and obviously a lot of trauma from the infertility journey as well. And so I just wanted to give birth to a live baby and I didn't think about what would come after that. I just thought it would all fall into place and I I couldn't – it's like my brain couldn't even think about what it would be like to actually have her here, yeah. And do you think – when we've, we've spoken previously um, – and you mentioned that you received a, a false mm. NIPT yeah. or NIPT. Yeah, we, we can't were, figure it out, We right? don't know which one's yeah. right. <laughs> you either. think I know by now, but I don't. <laughs> um, do you think receiving, and, and if you'd like to uh, mm. tell that story, but do you think receiving that false positive um, contributed to the anxiety you had oh, throughout absolutely. pregnancy? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's... It's really hard and I don't want to say this in a way that sounds insensitive because say if we had 10 embryos in the freezer and this was our pregnancy and we call – Sparky's obviously not her real name but we call her Sparky because, you know, we would have images of of the embryo growing that we got given by our clinic and we would think of her like sparking and having that energy in there. So, you know, even if we had other embryos – she's still, that embryo is still precious to us, but especially so she was our only embryo. So we had two transferred and one stuck, which is Sparky. And so if there was a problem, that's it. Like it it would be, you know, back to IVF perhaps, or back to the reality of perhaps never becoming a mother. Like there was no backup plan, if that makes sense. Um, And so she was going to be our daughter no matter what the problem was. But essentially we did this test because my doctor said, look, you're over 35, Um, we recommend you do this test. And we thought, oh, great, you know, you'll you'll find out if um, the gender of the baby. And, of course, you do worry, oh, what if they find there's Down syndrome or something like that. But I really didn't think about it. I just thought, yep, this is what people do. All my friends had done the test. And, we did it. Yeah, and you get, you know, you just expect that the result will just be normal. And so we got the test back and our doctor gave us a call and said, look, you're low risk for everything except for this um, – chromosome deletion, 1Q, chromosome 1Q deletion. And we're like, what the hell does that mean? I mean, I dropped science in like year 10 or something. Like I have no clue what they're talking about. And um, 
essentially we were then transferred to genetic counsellors at our hospital who were amazing, but they were very honest in the fact that they don't really know much about these things. They've only started testing in this kind of granular focus on these micro deletions in the last five years, I think they said. And so essentially what we were told was this result could be true, but it also carries a 70% false positive rate, um, which to me and my partner was obscene um, that you could be told, that's like going and being told you've got cancer, but 70% chance is that could be false. We were also told that it could be picking up cells in in the placenta, which means that it has no impact on the baby whatsoever. And we were also told that the region that it was picking up on was significant. I think it had a hundred chromosomes in there, um, but it could also be wrong. Like it could have got the, <laughs> it could have got the area wrong. I mean, it was just so comical in how ridiculous and like you pay what, 400 bucks to get this. Um, and anyway, so when I was asking the genetic counselors, like, what could that, what would that look like? And they said, look, it could be anything from, you know, cleft palate or heart issues, disabilities to something like mental illness. It could be asthma. It could be like, anyway, it, it really made me think about the ethics of what we're testing for and how granular we're going to get. It was, I mean, now that I'm out of it, I can say it was a really fascinating thing to, to consider. But at the time, it was obviously incredibly traumatic. Um, they offered us the option of a CVS or an amnio um, to find out definitively if if there was an issue. Um, because there was, I think it was one in 400 chance with the amnio of a miscarriage risk. That was one too many for me. I, I did not want to risk anything and my partner agreed. And at, at what stage? Is this like at three months? Uh, no, I think the amnio, I can't exactly remember because we declined it, but it, I think it's further on, which right. then brings into question if there is an issue and you decide that you don't want to keep the baby, it would have been a situation where we I would have actually had to give birth. Mm. I mean, I just – it was just so full on um, to even start thinking about all these things. Um, and we declined and we said, look, we're just going to go with the scans and, and see what happens. But firmly in our minds was that this was the embryo that stuck – for, you know, neither of us are religious, but we felt that she's meant to be here and no matter what what happens, that she's our daughter. And, um, you know, I guess previous to that, going through all the infertility stuff, I had also looked into adoption and adoption is so difficult, um, which is why it annoys me when people go, why don't they just adopt um, when people talk about going through a long IVF journey. Um, and the reality is with um, adoption, overseas adoption, that you're likely to adopt a child who does have special needs. And so I already had thought about what that would be like. Um, and so in my mind, I was already trying to think about how our life would be different, what we could provide the child. And and yeah, um, to me, I obviously hoped that she would be healthy, but if she wasn't, well, then she's our daughter and we're going to look after her. Um, and we obviously then had to have a lot of scans throughout the pregnancy and my partner couldn't attend because it was a uh, lockdown, COVID. And so I'd have to go into them and then call him at work and be like, look, everything looks normal. Um, and each scan, everything looked perfectly normal. Although I, we did laugh. He was able to come into the 20-week scan and that's such a long scan, you know, how they measure everything. And I remember them saying, oh, she's got very long legs. And my partner was like, is that due to the is that due to the um, chromosome deletion? And they're like, no, like you're six foot four, like she's just a tall baby. Um, but we were so paranoid for absolutely anything. Oh. Like, is that is that something wrong? Like, you know. And um, anyway, we we just kept having scans. They all looked normal and gave birth to her. And they tested her after she was born, and they found out that it was a false result. And that she never had the micro deletion, which obviously brought us such relief, but also anger and sadness about how that had 
changed our pregnancy and also it had put me in a high-risk category. I had also had to constantly remind the OB that we were seeing, you know, she would say things because she's got this microdeletion because of the test result and I'd have to keep saying, remember, there's a false positive there um, because it, it felt like I was being spoken about like that was – not just a screening test, that it was actually a definitive result, which it isn't. So, yeah, that was really hard. I felt like I had to constantly advocate for myself and the fact that I had the normal scans, I asked to go back to the midwives and really work to be able to have the kind of birth that I wanted rather than a highly medicalised one. But, yeah, that was really hard. And in the end, did you have a birth similar to what you wanted? Yes, I did. And I guess the flip side to all of this, um, having that result, and I also bled throughout pregnancy um, (laughs) due to a hematoma, because why not? (laughs) Let's just chuck that in there. Um, So I bled throughout pregnancy um, and had to go into the emergency department quite a few times to check fetal movements and and things like that. That's not at all to do with the test results. Apparently one in five women will bleed throughout pregnancy, but obviously I thought it was something dire. Um, so chuck in the hematoma and that test result and you got a lot of trauma. So I had actually been talking to the hospital psychiatrist and so what that then meant was that when I applied to get an exemption to have an extra birth partner, because at the time you could only have one person with you, obviously my, my partner, um, we had a doula. And so I kept requesting that she be able, she could attend the birth with us and I kept getting rejected. And I just thought, I'm just going to call every single week. And eventually I think they were like, let's just get this woman off the phone. Shut this woman up. Give her um, a doula. Exactly. So they let my doula attend. And so because she was there, she was absolutely fantastic in helping advocate for us. Um, When I turned up at the hospital, I think I was only two centimetres dilated. They were trying to send me home. But my doula was like, you know, you don't have to. Um, she helped me labor naturally until it got to a point where it was ridiculous because Sparky was spine to spine and was not moving (laughs) and um, got the epidural. And yeah, I mean, yeah, episiotomy and one liter blood loss, but look, she was out, (laughs) she was alive. And I was in shock when they put her in my arms. I just could not believe that she was alive. I was so paranoid that something was going to go terribly wrong um, that I I just couldn't believe it. I was in absolute disbelief. And I think from that moment on, I just, yeah, I, I found it hard to come down from that adrenaline spike, but also that anxiety. I think I was very naive to think the baby would arrive and then all of a sudden everything would be okay. In your talking to the hospital psychiatrist or psychologist, mm. did that come up at all? In terms of pre, like pre having her, yeah. Did they say? Did they give you a heads up? In terms of like postnatal depression yeah. and anxiety, they did actually, and yeah, I remember actually being quite defensive about it. So I went into the the birth very sleep deprived because she was spine to spine. I started having contractions on the Wednesday and she was born Monday afternoon. <laughs> so I was already exhausted. And I remember them saying to me in hospital after she was born, they were saying, you know, given that you haven't been able to sleep, I'd also said things to them like, oh, I, I just, I can't sleep because I need to watch her to make sure she's breathing. And I remember them saying, you know, that that can be a sign of postnatal depression or anxiety. While you were still in hospital. While I was in hospital. And I was defensive and I I still think it wasn't the best approach because I just thought I'm a new mom. I'm in a hospital without my partner because partners can only be here for two hours during visiting hours. I'm having to learn to breastfeed. I'm... I'm having to adjust to this whole new world. And of course I want to watch my baby sleeping. Like isn't every new mother protective? Like I just thought this is normal and you're just instantly putting me in this, in this box. Um, I guess they were right because I did end up getting postnatal depression and anxiety, but at the time I just wasn't really ready to hear it. Mm. Also those first few days, yeah. weeks, months, how, <laughs> but particularly like that, it's a massive shock yeah and your hormones are insane and it's this whole new world 
Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I imagine mm. that was that was a pretty big thing to hear. Yeah, definitely. And I just thought I'd had so many friends who had postnatal depression and anxiety. And, you know, because I'm a journalist, I had actually written an article about PND while I was pregnant thinking, oh, this is really important to to, to share this with women so that they, they know about it and we reduce the stigma and all these things. And because of the long lead times with um, editorial, it came out when Sparky was like three months old and my mum was like, oh, your article's in the paper. And I thought, it's like past Sam. Is talking to uh, to to future Sam, but yeah, I just it it was on my radar, but I just didn't think it would happen to me, and I don't know why. I just I, I just thought, and I know this is such a terrible stereotype, and I can't believe I even thought it. But just thinking, but you know, she's so wanted, and I'm just going to be so happy she's here, not realizing that everything I went through was going to result in postnatal anxiety and with that postnatal depression as well. So when when did you realise that you needed some help with that? Yeah, um, probably took a couple of weeks. Um, I was so buzzed from the birth that I just had all this like adrenaline coursing through me and I stupidly had said to my partner, look, I'm breastfeeding. There's not much you can do overnight. Like, I'll just do it all. I'll just do it all. Like, I was so heightened. And being first-time parents too, like, we didn't really know what was involved. So he was like, okay, great. Like, I'll sleep during the night and then I can do more during the day. So I did all the night feeds, everything for about two weeks and ended up with extreme insomnia. Like, even when she was sleeping, I could not sleep. And... What happened was I essentially felt like I was losing my mind, as you do when you have insomnia. My anxiety was out of control. I was too scared to even go out onto the balcony with the baby because I was scared. What if I dropped her? What if I had an instinct of what if I threw her? Like what? Like all these terrifying thoughts that I just couldn't even go out onto the balcony or if I, I had to walk down the stairs to, to get her into the car, I couldn't do it. I'd have to get my partner to do it because I was too scared. What if, what if something went wrong? Um, and, yeah, I just – I also, I I knew from the reactions of people around me, like I knew from my parents and my partner that something wasn't right with me. I was talking a million, like just a million words a a minute. Um, I was like pacing. I I could tell that I was acting a bit irrationally, yeah. And so what did getting help look like for you? Yeah, I guess uh, the good thing about having had anxiety and depression throughout my life is that I've always been pretty good at, at seeking help and I also knew that this wasn't how I usually felt. So I knew I had to get help straight away. Um, I knew that I couldn't be the mum I wanted to be to Sparky if I was like that. So the first steps were really going to the doctor Um and I got some melatonin to help me sleep. I worked with my naturopath, who's amazing, um, and Rhiannon, a shout out. Um, she put me on a lot of herbs to help calm my adrenals. And so that really helped bring me back into a less anxious state. But as the months went on, I still didn't feel 100%. I didn't although I know that sounds ridiculous what mum does on, on two hours sleep, but I, I just felt something wasn't right mentally still. I was absolutely dreading the mornings. Um, but one thing is I always felt this connection with Sparky. I always felt like I loved her. I wanted to protect her, but I also felt like anyone can do a better job than me. Or I remember in my darkest moments, like saying to my partner, like thinking if I'm not here, he could get remarried and then I would want his new partner to be a great mum to her. Like I need her to be looked after and it can't be by me because I'm I'm not doing a good job and she doesn't love me. Like all these kind of just ridiculous paranoid thoughts. And um, at that point I decided to go on antidepressants and I had been resistant to those my whole life. Um, but I just thought <clears throat> I've tried so many things and it's not helping and I need to, or it helped a little bit, but I really need to make a significant change. And as is often the case with antidepressants, I felt worse before I felt better, but now I just feel so much more capable. I 
am less flustered. Um, I can look forward to the day. I can deal with the challenges. Whereas previously, you know, if I was out with her and she would cry, I couldn't even speak and my heart would race and I couldn't, I just couldn't function. And so now I feel actually better than I have ever felt in my life despite being sleep deprived. So, so I probably should have been on medication earlier. Um, but yeah, yeah. And you touched on this just before, but um, because you'd gone through so much to conceive her, did you feel extra pressure? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I felt so much shame and I felt really embarrassed, like so embarrassed And it's funny, you often think that people are judging you when they're not. It was, but I had in my head that people would think, God, what did she think? You know, what what was she doing those six years? Did she not even think what it would be like to be a mum? Like, and I felt, yeah, shame of like, you wanted her so badly. And now you're thinking, what have I done? Like, I can't be a good mum to her, Um, you know, and just... And also like I didn't deserve to have postnatal depression or anxiety because I've got friends who've gone through IVF or are dealing with infertility who aren't lucky enough to get a baby. Like I'm so grateful even with all we went through, so many people go through worse than we do and don't have a baby at the end of it. So I felt like you have nothing to complain about. And it was talking to my counsellor who mentioned, you know, just because you've gone through that doesn't mean that that invalidates having postnatal depression and anxiety. And in fact, I can see how going through that made me more likely to get it because I didn't have that experience of, hey, let's have a romantic night and then I'm pregnant and I'll see the baby at nine months. Like that's not how it was for me. There was anxiety at every single turn. And so no wonder I got it. So I guess I learned to be kinder to myself and realize how common it is as well. That was something once I started talking about it, it's like everyone came out of the woodwork as well. And I had, you know, women of my mom's generation as well, who talked about mother and baby units that they'd gone into or um, how they wish that they had sought help. And they recognized now that they had postnatal depression and so I feel like people are much more open about it now as well, yeah. And having the conversation, did you find that helpful hearing other people's stories? Oh, yeah, absolutely because you just – I felt like an absolute terrible mum, especially with the anxiety and the intrusive thoughts. These are things no one talks about because they have so much shame around them and I just thought I was going crazy, you know. I thought – Like if I was walking over a bridge with the pram, I would make myself run over it because I was so scared, like, you know, hearing all those stories about people who snap and you just think, oh God, what if I lost control? And so I'd have, I felt like I had to protect her from me all the time. And even though I would absolutely never do anything, it's just, you get these thoughts and they just scared me so much and realizing how common that can be. I mean, even before having her, I mean, these are the things we don't talk about, but how often have you thought, oh, like there's a car, like if I just jumped in front of like those tempting thoughts that can scare you, right? But when you think about them as a mum, there's so much shame because it's the most precious thing in your life. And I was so terrified to say that because I thought they're going to take her away from me and I would never hurt her and I want to protect her. And then hearing from mums who said, you know, that's really common actually. And it's, you don't give power to those thoughts. They're fleeting. And there's actually an amazing book called Good Mums Have Scary Thoughts. And it really sums that all up about how common it is. And, and also that thought of what have I done? Like my life was better before, or like, you know, they deserve a better mum, or they don't love me. Those are so common too. And I just felt like I was the only one experiencing them. And I'm not, that's, that's super common. It's just, people might feel too ashamed to to mention it. Mm. I think I think talking about it is so helpful and I think sometimes um sometimes if you bring it up like I know in in my mother's group um we've got a, a WhatsApp a WhatsApp group and one of the mums said you know does anyone else have these thoughts of you know I'm going to drop my baby mm. walking down the mm-hmm. stairs and then her head's going to split open mm-hmm. and there's going to be blood everywhere. And, yeah. and and some of us said, yes, I have those thoughts mm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And 
others didn't say anything and that's fine too. But I think it is really common. It you know, is, yeah. Whether you have postnatal depression and anxiety or not, mm. those intrusive thoughts and they come in for a second and then they go away. But I imagine that when you have anxiety and depression that maybe it's a bit more pervasive. Yeah, and I had a friend ask me, she's like, what's the difference between, you know, the anxiety you have as a new mum and having postnatal anxiety? And I remember talking to her and saying, you know, for instance, and there's a great Australian film called Look Both Ways. I don't know if you've seen it, but she sees things very descriptively and very like they're playing out in real life. And that's how my brain works. It's very visual. And so, for instance, I was saying to her, you know, I really wanted to go for a swim and I haven't really left Sparky's side since she was born because I'm too anxious to, to be away from her. But it was a hot day and my partner said, look, I can drop you off at the pool so you can have a swim for an hour. And I thought we can't do that because we'll have to put her in the car and then he'll drop me off and then he'll forget she's in the car and it's a hot day and she's going to suffocate. And it just kept playing out in my mind. And I think those thoughts aren't necessarily uncommon, especially when you do read horrible news stories about things like that, that do happen. But one, I knew it wasn't likely. He's not going to forget that the baby's in the car. But also it stopped me going to the pool because I thought I absolutely cannot go because if I go and that happens, it's my fault. It's my fault because I was selfish enough to want time to myself and now I've caused something terrible to happen. And so I guess I explained it to her that for me, the postnatal anxiety has been a real barrier in me not being able to live life as I normally would. Whereas I guess you can have that thought and be like, okay, look, that's illogical. That's not likely to happen. And you get on with your day. Whereas for me, it was um, really incapacitating. Incapacitating? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That I just, it really started controlling my life. And how is that now? Because you're only just nearly six months in. It's much better, um, you know, and partly that's the medication. I'm also in an amazing group through the Austin called uh, Peary and it's a group of women who experience postnatal depression and anxiety and so we've done I think it's 10 weeks of counselling and sharing our stories and that's been really helpful. Also just getting out there and challenging those thoughts, so going, okay, you know, like I said, I haven't really left her but even if I can just go walk down the street to get like a tea or something, that challenges my perception that she has to be with me all the time to be safe. Um, and it's nothing, I trust my partner completely. It's just always the, you know, I always had these thoughts like he'd take her for a walk and I'd be like, don't park the pram underneath a tree because a branch could fall. Um, that's what happened to Judy and seven little Australians. Like that can happen. Um, I was just so heightened about everything. Whereas now he can go for a walk with her and I think, yep, pretty unlikely that's going to happen. So I'm just able to think much more clearly and much more rationally. And look, it does help as she gets older. She's so robust and she's such a strong little girl. Like she's just, we call her a brute. Like she will just knock herself in the face with a toy or, you know, she's just strong. And so that's also helped me realize she's not this precious little China doll that I have to take care of all the time. Like she's getting stronger and stronger. So what's something empowering that you would say to other mums? Who are going through postnatal depression or anxiety? Um, I think one, realise how common it is. You might feel like you're alone but you're not. It's just, again, people aren't necessarily talking about it. And also it will pass and you will feel better again, whether or not you take medication or not. I know that some of the women in the group that I mentioned, some are on medication, some aren't, some have found other ways that have helped them, but you're not always going to feel like this. And also like everything's a season. That's really helped me. I think in other aspects of your life, you can feel really stuck in certain things, like whether it's a job or whatever it may be, you think that's how it's going to be forever. But kids change so quickly and, you know, I'm still not getting a lot of sleep, but I know I will eventually. So just knowing things won't always be like this and you will get more of a balance. And, you know, I think it's also really, I find it really empowering rather than feeling ashamed about what I've been through, I want to tell her when she's older what I went through and how I sought help for her because I wanted to be a better mum. Like I don't feel ashamed that I've gone through it anymore. I just feel like I can tell her that 
I was strong enough to get help and that I wanted to be the best mum for her. I think that's really important, you know. Um, I had a friend who told me he grew up with his parents not really taking their mental health seriously and that impacted on him and his siblings and so I don't want that to be the case and so, yeah, I'm I'm proud of, of the help that I'm getting. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. It's been amazing hearing your story and really – enlightening and I think knowing more about other people's situations is is really comforting and and just broadens the perspective yeah oh thank you so thank you cheers um look if Sparky would have been here she would have been interjecting every (laughs) time I talk she loves to just you know have a bit of a chat so I think it's lucky she's been sleeping It's good that she's been sleeping. Yeah. It's just a shame you're not sleeping. I know. Oh, well. The sleep when the baby sleeps thing, that's just, that's oh, never going to work. Such yeah. No, that didn't work for me either. I think maybe, maybe once with each baby. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for this honest and open chat, Sam. There are links in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about some of the things we discussed in today's episode. If this episode has been triggering for you, I strongly recommend Lifeline on 13 11 14. Mummification is produced and hosted by me, Brody Matner. Our beautiful music is composed by Ben Talbot Dunn. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You'll be notified when a new episode is released and it helps us reach new audiences, which in turn will hopefully help more women feel less alone. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.